quite a precious time together, even though it might not always feel like that. Um, <clears throat> the mind sometimes moving to what's going to happen after, or sometimes counting off the minutes, or uh, maybe feeling anxious or dreading the end of the retreat. But uh, just beginning to make conscious this whole process of slowly moving towards the ending of something hasn't ended yet, got quite a while actually, but uh, just seeing how the mind tends to move around that. If you want to get a feeling for rebirth, then we can see where the mind's moving to. Um, and we're not moving with that because we're still in retreat. We can get the feeling of that pull into the next becoming, me appearing in such and such a place, doing something or other. So, while we're still in this mode, recognizing that it is to bring this circumstance, circumstance together and to have put this much application in, which everyone has, and to really steady the mind if it's moving in that direction already, try and steadying that impulse, and to continue being very uh, present, very patient with the unfolding of another day, uh, having um, generated quite a context within which to do this work now together from the cumulative silence and moments of attention, allowing some of the subtler uh, aspects of our being to reveal themselves, whether they're peaceful aspects, clear, insightful, or sometimes perhaps deeper patterns of obstruction or anxiety or grasping that become apparent to us. It's that subtle flow that's more difficult to see clearly when we're engaged in uh, the everyday activity and we're often just sort of on reactive mode. Uh, So honouring and maintaining uh, a sense of the preciousness of this time. Last night Kitty Sara was talking about moving from this... um, aspect of the Third Noble Truth of non-grasping, of opening into the spacious, the already peaceful, into touching into the relational field in terms of compassion, resonating with suffering in a way that allows it to evoke uh, a heartfelt feeling of of, uh, that uh, we call compassion, but that poignancy or recognizing um, the pain of it all and sometimes that <clears throat> feels very focused on me but as we begin to calm and open and the me and the you begins to dissolve and there's just us then that feeling of resonating with the suffering extends beyond the boundary of me and we start to, to feel it, perceive it in the world around us, in others, 
and it's not some, sometimes some people feel that very strongly and it can feel quite overwhelming or quite powerful other times it's just a subtle feeling and anything can evoke that feeling of compassion it can be uh, applied to the country immersed in war or conflict or famine it can be an abandoned dog that we see roaming around I remember when I was in in India meditating uh, at Budgaya and this little puppy abandoned puppy used to come and I'd sit and it would curl itself up in my lap and um, the worst thing for me was leaving, getting up, moving away going back to my lodging and having to to leave this puppy behind so I'd think of ways to take it in my suitcase back to England and and I went to these elaborate I thought about how I could of course it was impossible and then when I'd walk and start to move the puppy would literally grab my leg and sort of drag along with me and it was quite heartbreaking just sometimes it's easier to feel that feeling of compassion around a little puppy than it is <laughs> around another human being because of the innocence and the, the lack of guile, the guilelessness and artlessness um, vulnerability but it's just however we feel or whatever evokes it it's just allowing that sense of of being, being allowing ourselves to feel that and not feeling frightened of feeling pain sometimes these words non-attachment sound like we shouldn't feel anything anymore if we're non-attached we won't be moved we'll be like a stone wall or an enlightened cucumber just you know someone falls down in front of us and breaks their arm and we just say all that arises passes never mind we don't feel it but in a way meditation actually makes us more sensitive it doesn't um, hide us behind a brick wall it actually opens and allows us to feel more accurately Um, this um, this is always held in balance of compassion and wisdom always hold each other in balance so that uh, a certain amount of equanimity or perspective is sometimes quite important because if we just completely open to all the pain and we haven't got any perspective then it, just, it does become very overwhelming this contemplation on karma and things just on a very profound level being having their own perfection even the most difficult terrifying painful manifestations within this realm at a certain point they have their own this is how it is and it's that reflection that just helps to give balance the great saint uh, Kitisara mentioned the other day Nisagadatta Maharaj from uh, India no longer in body that he left a teaching called I am that that some of you perhaps have come across we were using the mantra or the reflection I am from his teaching the other day just to as a way of centering and recognizing that core sense of being another thing that he said which uh, I found very helpful about this notion of keeping balance is that wisdom wisdom says I am nothing 
while compassion says, I am everything. And between the banks of these two, the life of a saint flows. And uh, again, it's very much this paradox, wisdom, this thusness that Kedisara was saying, standing before or prior to the arising of all that manifests with this view of seeing all dharmas, all things as dreams, as illusions, as bubbles, as dewdrops, as shadows, and so on and so on. Just that ephemeral, just that dreamlike feeling about that which is apparent, that which appears in the manifested form. And realizing that we cannot identify the totality of who we are by a particular aspect of the manifested. And so, in that realization, wisdom, seeing clearly, says, I'm none of this. It's a total release. It's a total opening. And yet there's still contact. It's not that the manifested, in saying I'm none of this, totally dissolves on us and disappears into oblivion. And so, there's also the recognition. I mean, as the Buddha said, in cultivating and being in contact in the relational field, having a sense of compassion, the Buddha recommend that we see all beings as a mother or as a parent would contemplate or be with their only child. And that's not just saying you're a bubble, dear. It's, uh, it's engaging in a much more profound and dynamic way. And in this aspect, compassion resonating with being in relationship says, you know, at its most profound level, compassion is actually still non-dualistic. It's not saying I'm feeling compassionate for you. It's just recognizing there's just one of us here. There's just one face. And it's that profound feeling with, connected with the whole. Our deepest identity, knowing ourselves as the whole, and so therefore compassion says, I am everything. There's nothing manifesting in this world from the most awful to the most sublime that is apart from my true nature. So this cherishing, if you look at the, I mean it, it can be quite a complex notion in our modern culture um, with uh, for some people a lot of relational issues around the notion of mother or father but if we look at an archetypal sense of, of parent, what is that about? Parenting being with an only child, or um, as the Buddha said, cultivating a relationship or a sense for other as a, as a mother would cherish her child. When we look at a, that uh, kind of relationship, it's a, a very patient one in many ways. It's a very concerned one. It's a one that's willing to stay connected with through the ups and downs, through the, the tantrums and the difficulties, through the pains and the joys of the growth. Uh, it's one that has sacrifice in it. Sometimes it's joyful giving to, and other times it's just downright. If you talk to parents that uh, I haven't brought up children, but many of the people that I know that have been engaged in bringing up children, there's a lot about having to give up perhaps some of their what they want to do in life, either economically or where they might want to travel or things they might like to do for the sake of putting the children first. Mm. Which is, uh, I'm sure it's not always easy. (laughs) 
I'm sure that doesn't always, sometimes it may be very joyful and wonderful, but, you know, children aren't always grateful um, immediately. They don't always say, oh, thanks, Mum, gee, you know, you gave that up so that I could, uh, you could uh, hang out with me. Or, that, or thanks, Dad, you know, you've gone to work in this really boring job year after year so that you could bring home the food, or... You know, or with mothers doing that, going out working and juggling a thousand things to bring up the child, or whatever. What, this sort of whole, you know, in, in relationship with each other, looking at these qualities. It's not saying necessarily that we're, we're trying to be parents to each other, but what are the qualities involved in the relational field that evoke this sense of heart, heartfulness? Sometimes it can be firmness. It's not necessary. Some people feel compassion. It's just saying yes to everything, like being a, an enlightened doormat. Mm-hmm. People just run over you, and you can never ever say no. Mm-hmm. And you can never mm-hmm. be fierce or say this is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know that, that if we interpret compassion like that, then it, it becomes uh, it can become you know, something that's very Weak, not very, not giving a proper sense of uh, act, um, activity that can be destructive. So in parenting, sometimes there has to be a no, there has to be a boundary. But it's how how is that done? How is that done? And how do we parent ourselves primarily? Because we can talk about parenting children out there, but how do we? How do we bring that quality to bear upon our own being, to what's present here and now? And this is something in the meditation that we can consciously begin to contemplate. One thing that Carl Jung said, which I like very much, is that enlightenment is not just imagining figures of light, but it's allowing light to be brought to that which is already in the dark which has, has, has not really fully been seen clearly yet. And this is a lot of our work. It's, it's not so much about sitting here imagining um, ourselves as enlightened angels floating around on pink clouds um, and th- seeing something as compassion or kindliness as they all being free well. And just this sort of lovely sentiment, which is, which is nice enough in itself, but... There's something as well, something more gutsy than that, isn't there, about allowing ourselves to illuminate that which has been in the dark, which hasn't been clearly brought into the light yet. Uh, Those feelings of of depression or despair that we all feel, or loneliness and isolation, or rage and anger and irritation, or just fear and anxiety, judging, feeling of failure. It's more uncomfortable or really profoundly difficult feelings that sometimes when we're in the vortex of some of these feelings, it can feel very eternal. It can feel like I've always been like this. I've always been depressed. I've always been despairing. I've always been alone. We don't remember any other way. It has that kind of quality to it. You can, you know, you think, well, God, I'm never going to laugh again. I, 
I've gone through that in periods of meditation feeling this, uh, I'm never ever going to smile I know I'm never going to smile again it's just dark and this, this is difficult work this is difficult work and we've been working very much in, a, in allowing ourselves to be patient and to uncover and to, to develop capacity with our attention, with our awareness to hold, to be with some of these aspects of the kind of beings that appear. As our teacher used to say that, you know, we might have a notion of being a bodhisattva wanting to save all beings, but we can't be patient with the very being appearing in our consciousness right now, the feeling of irritation. That's, a, that's like a being, isn't it? It's like a visitor. It's like a, it has a definite tone and feeling and quality and shape to it. Maybe it's not an embodied being, but it certainly has an, an energy to it in the same way as an embodied being would have. So one of the most, <coughs> the most, um, what tends to obstruct our ability to really bear with some of these um, more difficult aspects of life is, is not necessarily that they're painful and difficult in and of themselves, which they are, but the aversion to the subtle or not so subtle pushing away, this, this resistance, this kind of mudra that we tense into. Um, and it can just be, it can be just a pushing away of that which we don't like, or just a habitual mood of pushing away contact, feeling, being here. So there's a, a very strong current for all of us of just this feeling of aversion, not wanting it to be this way, or shouldn't, as we were talking yesterday at tea time, the shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way, being should upon. <laughs> <laughs> our friend Ajahn Hindo says no one likes being should upon <laughs> and we, we should upon ourselves and each other all the time should, should and shouldn't so this you know, and this, <clears throat> this judging mind that is really good at dictating what should and shouldn't be when we move into that we, we actually moving away from feeling how it is and so we like to dwell often as the judge not really wanting to feel, not really wanting to be in contact with, like playing God. It shouldn't be like this. You shouldn't be there. I shouldn't be like this. And it's sort of quite painful, fueled by this, this feeling of aversion, not wanting. So the Buddha recognized this and he gave very specific teachings to help antidote or counteract. He said this aversion is like a poison and it needs a certain kind of medicine which in fact all the Buddha's teachings are like medicines really he said he's the great physician he just said well this is happening and try this homeopathic dose looks very mild and nothing much but it can turn the whole system around and sometimes you feel worse before you feel better so we're all in hospital at the moment here on the retreat (laughs) probably you know, going through feeling worse before you feel better. But this this antidote to aversion was this practice of metta, um, this contemplation of metta, or maitri in the Sanskrit, which literally means a softening, softening of the heart, an opening, goodwill, uh, loving, kindly, that kind of a 
receptive mudra. And this was taught initially as a, as, as a protection, as an, an antidote, an antidote to, to paranoia and fear and hatred and aversion. And also it has a certain protective quality to it, which the Buddha also talked about. In fact, when he first taught it, he taught it to disciples that had gone to meditate in a, a, a wilderness area, um, a forest or a jungle at that time. And they had gone there and uh, with the intent of practicing samadhi. And yet when they were out there, when it got dark, they just became overwhelmed with fear, totally freaked out, scared out of their wits, with strange noises and movements and spirits. In that worldview, they had very comfortable with the notion of spirits. Perhaps in our worldview, that's not so strong. Maybe wild animals, unseen shapes, and they just got terrified and ran away. And so next time they appeared before the Buddha, the Buddha said, how did your meditation go? Well, not so well, actually. <laughs> we, we bailed out. <laughs> what was the problem? Oh, God, it was, you know, we just got frightened. And so he again, then gave his teaching. He said, well, before you establish yourself in a, in a place like that to meditate, you should practice this metta. You send out literally a message to all the beings around you, seen and unseen, of non-harming. You actually gather them in, in a way of saying, my intent is not to harm, a feeling of loving kindness, an offering of sharing from the practice any goodness. And so it dissolves, it begins to act against fear. In fact, the, the forest monks of old in Laos and Cambodia and Thailand, when, when they were still forests, of course most of the forests have gone there, would actually practice the strength of their metta by going into forests that had tigers in. And they believed if they had a strong metta, they'd come out the other end unscathed. And of course, if you didn't see them again, you knew, <laughs> you knew they weren't up to scratch somehow. Had a bit more work to do, <laughs> probably from another plane of consciousness. <laughs> but then, but there was, you know, something very deeply held in the in the meditative culture that this metta, this kindliness, was something that not only we can cultivate very consciously, but it has a direct impact on on the field around us. And there are many stories of the Buddha's metta. I mean, presumably, a being of that awakenedness would have a huge aura of compassion and metta. The story of uh, Nalagiri, the um, elephant at the time, it's a bit gruesome, but they used to have a, an elephant that used to be their executioner and uh, in those days. Um, he used to stand on people's heads, that was it. A bit awful to think about. But there was this huge, massive elephant called Nalagiri who was the state executioner. And this cousin that Kirisawa was talking about, Devadatta, who had a problem he had a big problem actually um, with ambition and wanted to take over the order and get rid of the Buddha. He um, apparently, one of his strategies, he, he got together with um, 
with another guy who, who was the prince who wanted to get rid of the king at the time. And they schemed together and uh, unfortunately the prince did manage to kill his father with the help of Devadatta and he was hoping, Devadatta was hoping this guy would help him knock off the Buddha. So this scheme he decided to take into the elephant's um, compound a huge amount of alcohol and get him drunk and then unleash him on the Buddha. So that's what he did. He took these huge vats of beer or whatever and the elephant drank it and became completely out of control and he led him out onto the street and he was hurtling down the street towards the Buddha and his disciples. And Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, who was always really close to the Buddha, tried to stand in front and protect the Buddha. And the Buddha goes, Ananda, step to the side. <laughs> this isn't <laughs> not quite your job. Maybe this is a little beyond you. And it said that the Buddha just radiated metta. And the elephant screeched to a halt and bowed down before him. <laughs> and probably took the refuges and precepts and <laughs> anyhow this is a story I mean uh, one doesn't always know whether they're true or not but it doesn't really matter it's, the point is this power of, of love that the Buddha had was able to transform all that, it came, all that he came into contact with so nowadays we, we don't live <coughs> We don't necessarily go into tiger-infested jungles, but we do sometimes have to negotiate quite scary situations or difficult coming into contact with uh, people that might not be easy to be with or challenging or bring up fear for us or anxiety. Or like for us living in South Africa, it feels like a tiger-infested jungle oftentimes at the moment with a, with a huge amount of violence and it brings up a lot of fear. This is a practice that... Uh, we do quite a lot. And so one can do it at a very subtle level, metta, just that subtle level of just opening, being kindly towards what is present, receiving the being's consciousness that, that, that arise that feel painful to us, difficult to us, a kindly attitude, non-contending. Or it can be something we can actually cultivate and generate as a force, as an energy, using the mind energy, using the cap, um, capacity for attention and actually directing that in a certain way, connected with the heart. So it's a heart practice. It's also coupled with, 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 with the contemplation where we allow ourselves to let go more consciously of some of the, the grudges and the pettiness, the bitterness that we can hold in our mind. It's come about through and conflicted relationships. But it's really based in our, in our capacity to more and more unconditionally just feel how it is. Not, not to think about how it is, but just allow ourselves to feel. And that naturally begins to evoke that heart energy. Another way that the, in the Metta Sutta, <coughs> this first teaching that the Buddha gave, um, from which all the um, compassion and kindness teachings have arisen from, that was the first stanza that the Buddha uses is quite interesting. This is what should be done. This is to be done by one who is skilled in goodness. 
and who knows the path of peace. In this, this implies knowing peace, knowing the path of peace, knowing the way of peace. There is something to develop, this skill. It's a bit like if you are a woodworker or a craft worker and you have a block of wood and you start to hone it and shape it and work with it. If you want to make a bowl, if you want to make a door or something, then you need patience, don't you? You need skill, you need accuracy, you need all the different qualities that involve shaping that wood. And in the same way, this skill in goodness, this, this good, basic goodness of the heart, this good human capacity that we have, this kindliness of the heart, is something that it's there, but it's also something we can develop skill in and shape and and um, cultivate um, in a way that begins to generate something very beautiful in our lives. And part of the way that we do this, as he lays out in the Sutta, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. And then, whatever beings there may be, whether they are weak, or strong, or missing none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. And so here he gives the pith, really, of this contemplation. It's got no boundaries to it. And this quality of met is not dependent on whether I like you or not, that can be a rather fickle thing. It's not dependent on whether I'm getting what I want from you or not. It's not necessarily dependent upon, upon being in contact with suffering. That's more the compassionate quality. Kindliness is just, it's just a well-wishing. It's just a sense of wishing well for the benefit of others. Just wanting you to do well, wanting me to do well. It's, a, it's just a, that basic kindly feeling. Um, rather than a competitive or a jealous or comparing thing that we we often do in relationships. It's more just a conscious cultivation of may you be well, may you be at ease, may I be well, may I be at ease. And so it's moving, I mean we always start with ourselves and it's moving down from that judging godlike place where we're deciding what should and shouldn't be to a more kindly, forgiving, spacious, softening kind of place. There are many benefits to doing this, which the Buddha laid out. Uh, one that's well cultivated in this metta, in this kind, kindliness, the Buddha said, begins to sleep well and wakes well and dreams easily. So I, I think with the waking well, I've got a long way to go. <laughs> I usually wake thinking, oh no. <laughs> But this, this notion of working when we go to sleep, we can practice metta. We can practice just softening, opening, may I be well, with the breath. And eventually allowing that to permeate into the dream state. And Buddha says one that's really accomplished and well cultivated, well seasoned in this practice, is a lessening of nightmarish dreams. And then on waking, the heart is happy, the heart is contented, fresh, refreshed. 
a, a person well seasoned, well cultivated in this aspect of the of the heart uh, of kindliness becomes dear to human beings. Becomes someone. Sometimes we we feel we should be loved. Um, you know, we're not getting enough love. But really, it's also dependent on what we put out as well, what we generate. And can we also not wait till we're loved? Can we be loving? Can we be? It doesn't mean a huge burst necessarily of you know, feeling of oneness, but it can be just kind gestures, being thoughtful about someone's situation, thinking about an extra way that we might be able to just relieve some of their stress. It might be just a few words, how are you doing? Or it might be actually literally something we can do. Let me go and pick up the children from school today and give you a break. Or, um, you know, within our capacity, it's making these, it's translating that heartfelt thing into action and looking at the sphere, being sensitive, being in contact with, and then practicing it. It's not always something that just naturally comes. It's lovely when it naturally flows. But sometimes it does that same effort that we're using, cultivating these wonderful qualities in meditation. We use that to practice these moments of 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 help, of support, of kindness to those around us. Writing a letter to someone that may be having a hard time, or you know, just it can be very small gestures. Listening, being willing to just take extra five minutes out to listen to someone's problem, or listening to someone's joy. There's always, there's a huge area of practicing daily life around this. And consequently, not that that's necessarily the motivation, but consequently what you, you know, as the law goes, what you generate out comes back. And so one becomes dear, beloved, which is nice. It's a nice feeling to feel connected and hooked into the human family rather than isolated. Dear to humans, dear to animals and non-humans. Um, but, uh, the animal kingdom responds to uh, fearlessness, to kindliness, and uh, protected by the devas. This is perhaps something that may be a bit magical or beyond the realm of belief for some people, but certainly in the, in the Buddha's teaching, there was this uh, constant reference to the angelic kingdom. There wasn't, a, there wasn't such a strong veil between the different levels of consciousness. Uh, and the Buddha was always having these dialogues with angels that would come and tell him something or he would appear and give a teaching or they would turn up for some teaching or other. We might not have a sense for that, but there's a certain protective quality, becoming dear to those unseen forces that are drawn towards one that has a kindly disposition that radiates this benevolence and kindness which which goes into the next one this protective quality yes there are karmic circumstances sometimes that come into fruition that there's not a guarantee that we won't be hit by something really just you know really um, violent or difficult in our life but that possibility does become lessened and the Buddha said that one well seasoned well practiced in this Metta, this kindness, becomes more immune from death or from destruction by fire, by poison, by very violent means. It's not a total guarantee, but 
but it does lessen the probabil- probability, it does allow one to generate into the world the causes that don't necessarily bring about extreme violent results. This is an interesting one, this um, the ninth or the eighth, there's eleven benefits that are laid out, um, is, is that it quickens mental concentration. So it's actually a base for samadhi. You know, sometimes people feel in the meditation, well, I really want to practice concentration. You know, that's where it's at, really. Just break through and all this meta stuff and may all beings be well. I mean, that's for old ladies. That's for when you get, you know, really... <laughs> it's not the real fighting edge of the practice. You know, it's a bit sloshy or soppy or... But in fact, this, this base for samadhi has to be something based on ease has to be based on non-contention, has to be based on easefulness, which are all qualities of the, the heart of metta, the softening of the heart. So often the Buddha would talk about as a very base, before even beginning to apply Ritaka and bringing about these jhana factors we've been talking about, that this quality of softening and metta practice, may I be well, just taking out that driving edge that we can bring into our practice we sit and you immediately start to kind of engage in quite a willful way starting with a metta is more like just receiving kindly paying attention infusing the quality of attention with this kindliness to what is and then allowing that as we relax into what is allowing that to be a gentle base from then which to begin to apply mutaka that, that um, thought that directs attention to whatever we're working with, breath or sound or whatever. So it quickens mental concentration. Um, ninth one, beautifies countenance. Don't need any beauty creams. <laughs> I don't think it necessarily means that one suddenly becomes stunningly beautiful and appears in Vogue magazine, but I think it means that <laughs> that one that has you know, we even if someone is, you know, the form is not necessarily, you know, what we might call hugely attractive. That one that has a lot of meta, they they have a certain radiance or a certain countenance to them, which is attractive, which is pleasing to us. It's not sort of, <laughs> you know, when we when we fill with anger and we look in the mirror, it's just sort of a, you know, tightness. But then when there's a relaxing and a then it's more, it's more beautiful. Dies peacefully and if rebirth takes place, is subject to rebirth in the heavenly realm. So here the Buddha says, this is how you go to heaven, if you're interested. <laughs> I mean, again, that might not be part of our worldview, it might be, it doesn't matter, but this whole thing of, of, of a practice based in metta, a heart well seasoning kindliness, it's really a, a life that more and more becomes resolved and integrated, that there's not hard edges, unfinished business left. So when we come to die, there's a, an easefulness, there's a trusting. It's a, it's a heart that begins to just expand, open, trust, soften into, softens into the death process. And then if there is a reappearance, then the likelihood of the reappearance being in a more um, beautiful realm. So these are some of the traditional teachings around 
this practice of metta. I suppose it's just really an encouragement to get us going. A carrot, huge carrot, to uh, encourage us to to really seriously contemplate this practice as something that's worth doing, something that we can do, something that's immediately accessible to us at whatever level we wish to investigate it or in relationship to to our own being, what appears within our own being, and in relationship to the widest sphere of those that we come into contact with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.